Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are just so grateful that you are our God and you've called us to be your people. God, you've proven yourself faithful in our lives. Uh, We're so grateful that you've brought us here to worship, to open up your word and to hear from you. And so, God, as we come into this place, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see you and open up our ears to hear from you. God, soften our hearts to receive whatever it is that you have for us and strengthen our legs to go and do what you want us to do. God, fill this place and be present with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is not often at Christ Community Church that we have to correct a teaching that was delivered from the stage. But unfortunately, today is one of those days, and I've been tasked with that duty. Uh, Within this superhero series, we had a guest speaker with us a number of weeks back. His name was David Choi. And uh, David said something that we found concerning and definitely worth addressing. In his introduction, um, he was relaying the top five superheroes of all time. And he said something uh, that was concerning. Here's what he said, and I quote, He said that number three was Spider-Man. Thought that was a little bit of a reach myself. All you do is wear a costume and spin a web. That's not that legit. I know. You caught it, didn't you? (laughs) David, my friend, you need to repent. (laughs) Not only is Spider-Man legit, but he is the greatest superhero of all time. Thank you. If you're not clapping and you're wondering why, let me illustrate. Yeah, right? I heard you all singing along. At least everybody over 30, right? Yeah. Spider-Man is the greatest superhero of all time. Not only does he have the coolest theme song and a super cool costume, and not only can he shoot web out of his wrists, but he has superhuman strength. He has spidey sense, the ability to sense danger and instantaneously respond. He can cling to any surface anywhere. And by the way, he has the greatest alter ego name of any superhero ever. That's right, Peter. Peter Parker. (laughs) See what I'm saying? Not to mention the fact that he is Marvel's flagship character and their logo. You don't get any bigger than Spider-Man. But what makes him greater than all of this is the fact that Spider-Man was a kid. That's right. He was created in 1962 by legendary creator Stan Lee so that disillusioned teenagers might have a hero to identify with. Peter Parker was an orphaned and awkward and shy, often bullied teenager who while on a field trip with his class was bitten by a radioactive spider and in a short period of time he discovered that he had powers. He had abilities and he was confronted with a dilemma. What to do with these powers, with these abilities? Should he use them to to serve himself, to reach after fame and fortune? Or was he going to use them to serve others? That dilemma came front and center in his life when his uncle Ben was murdered by a thief that he could have stopped. And it's there in the story that we get the greatest line from any comic book anywhere. It comes from the mouth of Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben says this. He says, with great power comes great responsibility. See, you've heard the line. You know about it. 
With great power comes great responsibility. And in the Bible, there is no greater power, there is no greater responsibility in anyone other than the king. Well, today we are in week five of our superhero series, and we're going to look at one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. It isn't David, it isn't Solomon, it isn't Hezekiah. In fact, in order to get to this particular king, you got to endure about 400 years worth of mediocre kings at best, and for the most part, pretty wicked kings. And by the time you get to this king's story, you begin wondering if this kid's story is even worth reading. That's right, I said kid, because Josiah was just eight years old when he became king. But before we jump into Josiah's story and what makes him truly heroic, it's important for us to review a little bit of the history of the kings and understand the role of the king. So in order to do this, we're going to go all the way back to the book of Exodus. Just after God marched into Egypt and, and rescued his people from slavery, just after that, he, he takes them to the edge of the promised land, a land that he would, was going to give them. And just on the edge of the promised land, he says, listen, everybody, it's going to be a little bit different when you enter the land. Because when you enter the land, you're going to face new temptations, you're going to face new trials, there's going to be problems you never even thought of. And you're going to wonder what to do. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you some special instructions about what life's supposed to be like when you enter the promised land. And he gives them the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is all about who they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to act in this new place. And God knows that as soon as they enter the promised land, they're going to look at the nations around them and they're going to envy them. They're going to envy them for their, their size or their wealth or their military prowess. They're going to envy them for their king. And so smack in the middle of Deuteronomy, in chapter 17, God gives some special instructions. He says, listen, guys, when you get to the promised land, you're going to want a king. And you're going to forget that I'm your king. You're going to want a human king. So when that happens, here's what you need to do. You can have a human king, but here's what they got to be like, all right? The first thing is they cannot be a foreigner. If you put a king on the throne, do not bow down to a foreigner, no matter what. Second thing, they can't go back to Egypt, all right? I saved you from Egypt. Do not go back there. Don't go back there for wealth or rations or weapons or support. Don't go back. I'm your only provider. Okay? Got it? And the last thing is this. If you're going to be king, you can't amass three things. You can't amass weapons, wives, or wealth. Because a king that had an arsenal of, of horses and a fleet of chariots wouldn't remember that God is his deliverer, his protector. And in those days when a king took a wife, it was much more of a military treaty, a political surety. And when that king took a bride, he was not only obligated to that bride, but he was also obligated to her people and to her gods. And so God says, listen, if you take all these wives, these foreign wives, you're going to stray, you're going to wander, and you're going to forget me, so don't do that. And lastly, a king that has a lot of wealth is going to forget that God is his only provider. Uh, wealth just has a tendency to distort our view of things. It makes us forget where all that good stuff comes from. And so God says, listen, don't amass those three things. You gotta be, gotta be an Israelite. You can't go back to Egypt. And you can't forget that I'm your king, I'm your provider, I'm your protector. And then he says, listen, so that you don't forget these things. When the king assumes the throne, there's three things I need him to do. The first thing is he needs to write for himself his own copy of the law. This very book of Deuteronomy, he can get it from the Levites. Go get it and copy it in your own handwriting. And God tells him to do this not just so that there's more manuscripts of Deuteronomy floating around. All right? I believe it, had more, it, was, it was about more than just that. 
In fact, researchers tell us that if we write things down, that we're more likely to not just remember them, but we're actually more likely to do them. Because it moves from just the linguistic and auditory parts of our brain into the spatial areas of our brain and the behavioral areas of our brain. In other words, when we write something down and we spatially place it on a page, our body physically also spatially places it in our brains. It moves from one area of the brain to another area of the brain, and it's indelibly marked there because our bodies have physically shaped the words. And researchers tell us that when we physically shape the words with our hands, when we physically write them down, it's kind of like a dress rehearsal for doing those things. So if you've ever written down your goals or you've even written down a to-do list, if you've written it down, you're more likely to accomplish it because your body automatically thinks you've already done it. But I'll bet God knew that when he asked the king to write down the law. And the second thing he says is this. Don't just write it down, but keep it with you all the days of your life and read it every single day. In your own handwriting, read that law so that you do not forget, O king, that you are under the law. You're not above it. Don't forget, when I called you to be king, I called you to be a servant with the people, not to lord it over them. You're not above the law, but you're under it. And the last thing that God says is not just to to write it down and not just to read it, but to obey it completely. Not turning from it to the right or to the left. And that might sound a little redundant, kind of obvious, right? Of course you're supposed to obey it. But how often do we have this do as I say, not as I do mentality, right? The more authority, the more power we have, the more prone we are to that kind of thing. Like when we're moms and dads, we just tell our kids, you know, do it. Why? Because I said so. Because my word is important. God says, no. Your actions are important. Obey my word. And how much more of a temptation would it be for anyone than the king to think that he's above the law, that he's over the people? And so God says, when you, when you call out for a king, make sure that the king does these three things. Now, after that, God takes them from the edge of the, the promised land into the promised land, and he raises up a leader named Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, we have the conquest of the, the promised land. And he overthrows the Canaanites, and he drives out the foreign gods, and he establishes his people in the promised land. And while they're there, some, some things happen. They don't, they don't actually drive out all of the foreigners they're supposed to drive out. They don't do away with all the foreign gods. And so they continue to pop up and cause problems for Israel. And the people cry out. They say, God, deliver us. You know, rescue us from this problem. And so God raises up judges in the book of Judges. And those judges go from pretty good to pretty bad. And by the time you get to the end of Judges, you're just done with the judges altogether. And so God raises up a new leader. He raises up a guy named Samuel. And Samuel is a prophet. He speaks on behalf of God. And he reminds the people of what it says in the law and what they're supposed to do and who they're supposed to be. So that those enemies don't rise up against them. But by the time you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel come to Samuel and they say, listen, Sam, we're, um, we're tired of you. You're old and your kids don't quite follow you the way that they're supposed to. We want a king like the rest of the nations around us, just like it was prophesied in Deuteronomy 17. We want a king. We want to be just like the nations. And Samuel is heartbroken. He turns to God and he says, God, did you hear these people? And God says, yeah, yeah, Samuel, don't worry. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They've been doing it for years. Ever since we left Egypt, they've been forgetting me. They want a king? Give them a king. And the people wanted a king that was going to be heroic. They wanted a king that was going to be a warrior that would fight for them. And a diplomatic statesman that would go negotiate for them. They wanted a towering figure who was going to intimidate their enemies. I want you to think of somebody like Thor or like Captain America, only bigger. 
right? And so God gives them Saul. Saul was everything that they had in mind. In fact, the Bible tells us that he was handsome and he was strong and he was head and shoulders taller than any other man and the people were in awe. And the first thing that Samuel does when he anoints Saul as king is he gives them the book of Deuteronomy. He says, Samuel, or he says, Saul, write this down. All right? Copy for yourself your own copy of the law. And so that's exactly what Saul does. But then something crazy happens. Instead of taking it with him, it says that Saul deposited it with the Lord. In other words, he left the word of God in the tabernacle and he went on to be king without it. But isn't that what we do sometimes? We come to church on Sunday morning, we hear the word of God, and we, that was pretty cool, and then we leave it here, we don't take it with us. It's exactly what Saul did. Within a few chapters, Saul is pridefully considering himself above the law, and he breaks God's law. And when Samuel confronts him on it, he pridefully shrugs it off. And so God, through Samuel, says, listen, Saul, I'm taking the kingdom away from you, and I'm going to give it to a man after my own heart. And God sends Samuel to a little town called Bethlehem to the family of a guy named Jesse. Now, Jesse had eight sons. And God says to Samuel, you're going to find your king among his eight sons. But when you get there, don't look at the outward appearance. All right? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. All right? So don't look at his outward appearance. And so one by one, the sons of Jesse walk in front of Samuel. And Samuel looks them up and down. And the, the oldest one, the strongest one, the biggest one is rejected. And one by one, the next and the next and the next. And all seven of Jesse's oldest sons walk by Samuel. And none of them was chosen by God. And so Samuel looks at Jesse and he says, Jesse, I thought you had eight sons. Where's the youngest? And he says, oh, it's David. Yeah, he's just a kid. He's out in the field watching the sheep. But, you know, he's probably not your king. And Samuel goes, no, 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 bring him in. And as soon as David is brought in, God says, that's the man. And Samuel anoints David. This is the same David who would defeat Goliath. The same David that would give us a number of the Psalms. The same David whose sins we're very familiar with, right? David was not a righteous king by any stretch. Man, he had his problems. And by some stretch, they were worse than Saul's. So what is it? What, what gives? What makes David a man after God's own heart and Saul, this wicked king whose kingdom was pulled away from him? It has everything to do with how David responds to his sin. When David is confronted, he's, he's humbled, he's convicted, he mourns, he grieves, he begs for forgiveness and he makes it right. Then he turns back to following the Lord. You see, God doesn't expect perfection from any one of us. He expects humility. The heart that God honors is a humble heart that's willing to receive what he has to say. And so from that moment on, every single king in the history of Israel is held up to the standard of David. Every single king. And, and if you go through the next couple of books, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, every single king that is presented is presented with a summary statement. It'll say something like, and such and such was king over Jerusalem for X number of years, and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they did not follow all of the ways of their father, David. And in fact, the, the more mediocre kings, it'll say something like, so-and-so was king in Jerusalem for X number of years, and they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not quite completely as their father David did. Instead, they followed their father, such and such wicked king. In other words... Yeah, their heart was headed in the right direction, but 
eventually they got hard-hearted and they stopped following the Lord. In fact, there's only three kings in the history of Israel that are given a positive report. And by the time you get to the end of 2 Kings, by the time you get to Josiah, you are wondering if this is kind of like Henry VIII I am. Second verse, same as the first, right? Like, why even read this? But we open up chapter 22, and here's what we see. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah, and she was from Bazkoth in Judah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. What qualifies Josiah to be such a king, to receive such an accolade, to be said to be like David? Before we get into that, I want to address three things that don't disqualify Josiah. What didn't disqualify him? The first thing that didn't disqualify him was his age. He was just eight years old when he became king. Can you imagine that? Being king at eight years old. If you have an eight-year-old, I want you to imagine that eight-year-old as king. Yeah, I'm imagining something like Veruca Salt and Augustus Gloop running amok in the Willy Wonka chocolate factory, right? But that's not Josiah, not at all. In fact, 2 Chronicles tells us that while Josiah was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. While he was still young... Age does not disqualify us. Young people, it is never too early to seek the Lord. You are never too young to pick up the Bible and read it for yourself. You're never too young to pray. You're never too young to serve. You're never too young to give. You're never too young to lead. One of the things that I absolutely love to do on the weekend is walk through Kids World and see the amount of middle schoolers and high schoolers that are serving every week. And they're not just there to increase our leader-to-child ratios. They're there because God has gifted them and given them a passion to pass their faith on to younger kids. A while back, my, uh, my son Elijah was putting together his list of friends he wanted to invite to his birthday party. And he had all of his typical buddies on it and a name that said Andrew. And we were like, well, who's Andrew? We couldn't figure it out. And Elijah tried to describe Andrew and, and we just, just couldn't put two and two together. So I thought, we'll just we'll figure it out later. We, we put it off and the next weekend we went to church and as we walked into Kids World, Elijah points at this kid and says, hey, Dad, that's Andrew. And Andrew was a seventh grader in Genesis who had been serving in Kids World every single week. And Elijah had fallen in love with Andrew because Andrew talked to him about the Bible and answered his questions and worshiped with him and made him feel loved. Andrew was used by God in a real mighty way in the life of my son, and I'm grateful for Andrew. This past summer, I went on a go team to Brazil, and while we were there, three middle school boys jumped up and said, hey guys, we want to lead devotions. We want to do the spiritual stuff, the, the spiritual leadership. Can we do that? And as leaders, we were all like, oh yeah, sure. Yeah, go for it, guys. And I got to be honest with you, when they led, they had a, a, a perspective on scripture that was just inspiring. They, their interpretations and applications were things that I would never have thought of. And every one of us in that team from the oldest to the youngest, was blessed because God used these three middle school guys to speak to us and teach us. And it was inspiring. You are never too young to be used by God. In the same way, you're never too old to be used by God. I know our culture has a way of putting people on the shelf at some point, but that's not how God operates. In fact, listen, some of the greatest volunteers in Genesis, our middle school program, are grandparents. And the reason why is because They've got experiences and wisdom because they're gentle and patient and kind. Because they have compassion for these kids who are hurting. I love it when grandparents volunteer to serve our kids. 
I love seeing grandparents jump into go teams and help out with community groups and, and jump in a second Saturday. You are never too young. You are never too old. Age is not a disqualifier. The second thing isn't a disqualifier is background. Did you notice that it, as it described Josiah's background, it mentions his mother and his grandmother, but it never mentions his father or his grandfather? That's a little strange. If you, if you read First and Second Kings, that's different. And the reason why is because Josiah's dad and grandpa were pretty wicked guys. His grandfather was a guy named Manasseh who was so wicked that the author of 2 Kings pins the entire fall of the nation on him. He was a wicked man. And his son was a guy named Ammon. And Ammon was so wicked that his own cabinet assassinates him within two years and puts eight-year-old Josiah on the throne. Can you imagine? That means that Josiah was not just young, but he was an orphan. And he had no one to turn to, no one to look to for leadership, for an example. You think about your background, you might look at your, your family history, you might say, man, there's just a, a history of divorce in my, my family. How could I possibly have a marriage that honors God? I've got a history of abuse and alcoholism and addiction in my past. I am just doomed to repeat that. There's a history of, of abuse or neglect. There's hurt and pain There's division in your background, and it's easy to look at that and go, God could never use me. How could God use me? But guys, if God could raise up Josiah from that background, without any examples at all, he can raise you up. It tells us this in the the New Testament. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. God starts fresh with every one of us, and our background doesn't matter. You know, the third thing that doesn't disqualify Josiah is the culture around him. Israel was a place that was steeped in Jewish tradition, but just drenched with paganism and idolatry. As you read 2 Kings, you realize that there was idols and temples to foreign gods. There was temple prostitution. There was child sacrifice. This was a wicked place. These people who were called by God to be a chosen race, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests were completely idolatrous and unfaithful to the God that called them. It wouldn't be hard to look around us today at the culture around us and and just go, God, what's to become of the church? What are you doing, God? Can you you turn the tide? Man, this culture is just so wicked. It'd be easy to point out a dozen different things going on right now. I don't need to tell you anything. Most of you go to school or to work and, and you look around you and you wonder, man, where is God? What's going on in our country? Weren't we a country kind of founded on the idea that we're going to pursue God? Culture doesn't disqualify. If God could raise up Josiah in that culture, he can raise up heroes from among us right here. Age, background, culture do not disqualify. But what does? What qualifies someone to be used by God to truly be heroic in God's economy? Let's jump back into the story of Josiah, all right? It says that in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, he decided to do something a little crazy. He decided to renovate the temple, all right? The temple was the most important building in all of Israel, in all of Jerusalem, and he decided to begin this big renovation plan. But it doesn't tell us why, all right? We're never told why. And to be honest with you, the author of Kings doesn't really care about these renovations. In fact, after this statement... The temple is never mentioned again. It's forgotten. Because what's about to happen is even greater than the temple. 
as he begins these renovations, he sends word to the, to the crew, to Hilkiah the high priest and all the workers there. He sends word through this guy named Shaphan, the secretary, kind of like the secretary of state. And he says, listen, here's how you're supposed to pay out the funds, and here's what's supposed to happen, and I want you to go and get a report and bring it back to me. And so Shaphan does that. And here's what we read in 2 Kings 22, verse 8 through 10. It says, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law that the te- in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then the Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have trusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. I'm going to pause right here and talk about this book. This is no ordinary book. Most likely, this is the book of Deuteronomy. Scholars tell us that based on what comes in chapter 23 and the characteristics that are unfolding here in 2 Kings, that this is most likely that book of Deuteronomy that God gave them on the edge of the promised land. It's not just any book. This is kind of like their constitution. So I want you to imagine what's going on here. They're, They're renovating the temple. They're into this back room, maybe. They're tearing down a wall, and they find this book. I want you to imagine if after the the founding fathers penned the constitution of our country, they laid it on display in one of the museums and everybody got to see it for a couple of months and then some janitor somewhere packed it up, put it in a box and and deposited it in the archives and forgot it was there. And we as a nation existed for 400 years without a constitution. Can you imagine where we would be? We would be a far way away from where the founding fathers had imagined us being. And can you imagine how exciting it would be to find the Constitution after 400 years of silence, of of it being missing? Can you imagine the celebration? Can you imagine the the excitement? Can you imagine the the regret for not having this document? That's what's going on in this passage. They find the most important book in their history. And so Hilkiah gives it to Shaphan, and Shaphan goes back to read it to the king. And here's what we read, that when... When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendants. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what's written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written here concerning us. Did you hear it? Right here, this is what makes Josiah truly heroic. It was the response of the king. When Josiah hears these words, he tears his robe. And later on we read that he weeps. He is deeply convicted by the word of God. This is what makes Josiah truly heroic is that he responds to God's word like no other king. Notice the contrast that the author gives us in this chapter. Hilkiah the high priest, the guy whose job it is to preserve this book and to teach this book and to protect this book, he kind of pulls it out of the archives and he looks at it and goes, hey, look, it's the book of the law. Hey, Shaphan, you might want to give this to the king. He's not excited. He's not convicted. There is no emotion in Hilkiah whatsoever. And when he gives it to Shaphan, what does Shaphan do? He brings it back to the king and he leads with business as usual, Right? Hey, king, the temple renovations are going well. The money's been paid out. All the workers are doing well. Oh, by the way, we found a book. A book? You found a book? This is not any book. This is the the constitution of the nation of Israel. It's not just any book. And by contrast, when Josiah tears his robes and weeps and mourns, 
It shows us two really important things. One, the wickedness in Israel went way up to the top, all the way to the high priest, the guy who was supposed to be most connected to God. The second thing it tells us is this, that this king, Josiah, was no ordinary guy. He was no ordinary king. Josiah got it. When confronted with the word of God, he understood. He received it. When I was a youth pastor in Florida, I had a volunteer and a good friend. His name was Bob. And Bob had one of those Bibles that looked like it had been through a war. You know what I'm talking about? Like the pages are falling out and there's, you know, the covers held on by duct tape. And, you know, it, it looks like a, a Care Bear exploded on the inside with all the highlights and covers, colors, right? You know what I'm talking about. He had one of those Bibles. And one day I said, hey, Bob, tell me about your Bible, man. Why don't you get a new one? He's like, no way. I love this book. Did I ever tell you about when I first got this book? I said, no, tell me. Bob says, this Bible was given to me by a friend, and, and I wasn't a Christian at the time. And he said, here, take this Bible, and I want you to read the New Testament. And he put a, a bookmark in Matthew. And so I went home, and I began reading in Matthew chapter 1. And I didn't get halfway through the Sermon on the Mount, like chapter 6 or 7 maybe. And I was so frightened by what I read that I put the book down, and I didn't want to touch it because I thought that God was going to strike me with lightning or something. I was just so far from being the man that God wanted me to be. Now, while Bob's theology was a little bit off, his reverence for God's word was spot on. You see, when we're confronted with God's word, how do we respond? Do we respond with reverence? Do we recognize that this is God's very word spoken to us? Or are we more like Hilkiah and Shaphan? Just a book. Have we packed it away in the archives of our lives and let it get dusty? Or do we let it penetrate our hearts and convict us of sin and guide us in our decisions? How do we view the very word of God? But with Josiah, he responded with great conviction. He responds in three more ways, and we're going to get to those in a minute. But before we do, here's what, here's what Josiah does. Josiah sends word with his cabinet to a prophetess. Her name is Huldah. He says, go talk to Huldah and figure out what we're supposed to do in response to this law. I want to know what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to respond. And so they go to Huldah, and Huldah prophesies. And she, she sends word back to Josiah. And this prophecy has two parts in it. The first part is this. Yep, the prophecy is true. The people of Judah are doomed. Because of their wickedness, because of their idolatry, Babylon's going to invade, they're going to be taken into captivity, and there's really not much you can do about it. But king, and the second part is this, because of the way that you've responded to the word of God, because you tore your robes, because you wept, because of your conviction, you're going to be spared from witnessing that, from experiencing it. You're going to die in peace, and you're not going to have to be, be part of that whole invasion and captivity. So they bring word back to Josiah. And i got to imagine that when he receives word, he has kind of a Spider-Man moment. Right in that moment, he's brought with a dilemma, right? How to use the power he's been given. How to use the favor as king. Because he's already been given the prophecy, right? He's not going to witness the invasion. He's not going to be there for the doom and destruction. Should he just kick back and relax and enjoy all the privileges that he has as king? Or should he choose to use those powers with responsibility and try to save the people. And I believe in that moment, though the text doesn't say it, something inside Josiah just rises up and, and he, he's committed to doing something to reconnect these people with their God. And so the first thing he does, the first action he takes has to do with the covenant. All right? Here's what we read in chapter 23, verse 1. It says this, Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and he went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, and all the people from the least to the greatest. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. 
The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and with all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. This covenant was significant because the covenant was God's promise to his people and his people's promise to God. In this covenant, God promises to be their king, to be their provider and their protector. And the people promise to follow God as their king, to give him their loyalty and devotion. And this covenant was entered into in a ceremony. And this was a renewal of that ceremony. We read about this ceremony in Deuteronomy, right? And it begins with a reading of that book. Everybody stood and listened to the entire reading of the book of Deuteronomy. And then after that reading, they would have a sacrifice. And the blood of that sacrifice would ratify, it would confirm the covenant. And then the people would respond by saying, we're going to do everything that's written in this book. And if we don't do it, we're going to be like that sacrifice. We'll be cut off. And we're going to do exactly that. I want you to notice two really important things about this covenant ceremony. The first thing it says is this, that all the people from the least to the greatest, all of them participated and all of them in unison responded to God. While we might talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, faith is never something that we do alone. It is not a solo sport. When we come to God and we enter into a covenant relationship with God, we also enter into a covenant relationship with one another. We are the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't just stand before God alone. We stand together from the least to the greatest. That means when we gather together and worship, every one of us is part of the body. Every one of the kids that's in kids' world. It doesn't matter if you come with your family, if you're married or if you're single. It doesn't matter if you're a widower or a widow. It doesn't matter if you're broken and far off. It doesn't matter if you have it all figured out. It doesn't matter if you come on Tuesday night to care night because you got things you got to deal with. Or if you just come on Wednesday night to Genesis and Mosaic, because that's where your buds gather. You are part of the body of Christ. And we together are the, community, the covenant community of God. When God speaks, when God moves, when God provides, when God protects, he does so in the community. And if you want all of God's greatest blessings, you've got to be found here. That's why it's so important to join together in weekend worship. That's why we invite middle school students to join us in the weekend service. We don't have a special service for middle schoolers and high schoolers. You're here because you're part of the body of Christ. You're important to us. And so we all gather together. That's why we think it's so important to be in community groups. To be with a group of people who will open up God's word with you and pray for you and encourage you. And you can get into a group if you're a guy or a girl, a couple, middle school, high school, college. In fact, everything we do in kids' world is all centered around groups. And today there's a group table out in each one of our atriums. I want to encourage you to stop by there and jump into a group because that's where God moves. That's where God speaks. That's where we get the fullness of what it means to be part of the covenant community. We're together. Second thing worth noting is that Josiah doesn't stand above the people. He doesn't stand above the law. What does he do? He stands before the people and he enters into the covenant first. When God raises up a leader, he raises up a leader to serve, to be an example. He raises up a leader from within, and he expects them to be under the law and with the covenant community. And so Josiah leads the way in making that covenant. Many of you have been called to lead, right? If you lead, the question is this, how do you lead? Are you above the law? Do you kind of have a do as I say, not as I do mentality? 
Do you submit to it? If you're a mom or a dad, do you lead the way in your home when it comes to apologizing and asking for forgiveness, when it comes to confession? Do you model that as a parent? If you're a business owner, if you're a, a manager, do you set the tone for your employees or do you live by your own set of rules? Do you slip in late? Do you slip out early? Do you park where you want to? Do you do and act as you please? Or do you provide the example that, that they need? If you're a community group leader, do you come prepared? Do you come prayed up? Are you the kind of leader that contacts the people in your group and prays for them regularly and shows up when life hits the fan? Do you lead by example? Are you part of the covenant community or have you risen above the law? Have you risen above them? So when God raises up a leader, he raises up a leader like Josiah to be an example, to respond to God's law just like everyone else. And so Josiah responds by being part of the covenant community. The next thing that Josiah does is he opens up an all-out offensive against sin, a campaign, I'll call it. He launches a campaign against sin. And the next 17 verses uh, unfold a campaign that goes from the, the very top of Israel all the way down to the bottom. And it's very reminiscent of, just, of Joshua's invasion of the promised land. And he throws over the, uh, overthrows the similar gods and similar people. And he tears down the temples and the idols. Josiah doesn't take this lightly. He goes on an all-out offensive against sin. And when we encounter the word of God, when our hearts are broken, when we're convicted, we too have to do that. We have to be all out against sin in our lives and do away with the temptation that leads us astray. When I was a youth pastor in Cincinnati, I had a student, we'll call him Robert. Robert came to me one day and he said, Pete, I am just struggling with my computer. I'm going to places online that I shouldn't go. I'm seeing things I shouldn't see. I've become addicted and I don't know what to do. Help me. And I said, Robert, here's what you need to do. You need to, first, you need to confess that to mom and dad. You need to pray about that. You need to find some guys that can come around you and hold you accountable and encourage you. You need to go find some software to put on your computer that will block that kind of stuff, a filter, a monitor, something. You need to do that. You need to do it right away. And we prayed about it. We kind of got him connected with some guys, and, and then he left. And a few days later, he came back to me. He said, Pete, I did it. I said, what would you do? He said, I did exactly what you said. I even went out and I got some monitoring software for my computer, and I installed it, and I set the... The, the limits as high as I could, as strict as I could. And then when it came to asking about the password, I covered my eyes and I just punched the keyboard and hit enter. So I wasn't going to ever go back. I'm like, man, it's great. He goes, well, not really. My parents are kind of upset because now we can't go anywhere online. <laughs> I said, oh, they must be ticked. He goes, no, actually, we'd rather honor God than surf the web. Does that describe you? Are you willing to go all out declare war, go on a campaign against sin and temptation in your life. If God's word is true, we've got to honor him with everything we've got. And for some of you, that's something really simple. It might just be changing your vocabulary. Uh, Maybe just changing your routines. For others of you, it might be more difficult than that. It might mean ending a relationship, breaking up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or, or ending your cohabitation. For some of you, it might mean changing schools, or quitting your job, or changing vocations altogether. You might think that's a little bit extreme, but remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be condemned. It, sin is nothing to be taken lightly. We've got to follow Josiah's example and launch an all-out campaign against sin. The last action that Josiah takes is he celebrates. 
He celebrates the Passover. Here's what we read in the end of chapter 23, verse 21 through 23. It says, The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Neither in the day of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel, and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. The Passover was a celebration that reminded Israel of their defining moment in their history. It reminded them of the time that God, their king, marched into Egypt and overthrew the Egyptian king, overthrew Pharaoh, ransomed his people, brought them out and into a land of their own and provided for them. And on that night that God led them out of Egypt, the angel of the Lord came and passed over the Israelites he visited death on the households of Egypt, but on the households of Israel, he passed over and brought them into a place of life. And so this celebration is the defining celebration in all of the nation of Israel. It reminds them of who their God is, and it reminds them of who they are. And it says right here that they hadn't celebrated it since the time of the judges. Can you imagine that? About a thousand years since they celebrated the Passover. No wonder they forgot who they were. No wonder they wandered. When we forget who we were, we're prone to wandering too, aren't we? When we don't gather together with the covenant community of faith, it's easy to wander. When we don't jump into God's word and read it daily, it's easy to forget who we are. So Josiah reenacts, he reestablishes the Passover. And at the end of chapter 22, we're given an amazing summary of Josiah and his kingship. It says this in chapter 23, verse 25. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. That is quite a statement. Did you notice he's the only character in all of scripture that said to have followed the Lord with his whole heart and soul and strength? The only one. The only one who obeys what it says in Deuteronomy 6. And confirms what Jesus said is the greatest commandment in Matthew 22. To follow the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength. He is one of Israel's, if not Israel's greatest king. And yet, Josiah, in all of his righteousness, was not able to save the people. Like the next couple of verses relay that Josiah died tragically on the battlefield. And within a generation, the Babylonians come, they ransack Jerusalem, they destroy Judah, and they take all the people captive to Babylon. And we're left scratching our heads going, wait, 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 wait. This is not how the story's supposed to end. Josiah is supposed to be forgiven. The people are supposed to be forgiven. They went through this covenant ceremony. They remembered the Passover. They, they got rid of all the idolatry. This story does not end right. This is supposed to end with Josiah in peace, reigning over the kingdom a long, long time, and God forgiving them and protecting them, isn't it? The answer is no. Because that's not the point of this story. God's got a better message in mind. The message that the author of 2 Kings is trying to give us is this, that no king, no matter how righteous, no human being, no matter how great, could possibly lead and provide and protect his people like God could. He alone was their king, which brings us to the righteousness of the king, Jesus Christ. As we open up the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, here's what we read. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. In other words, Israel, people of God, all of creation, here's your king. 
He was just a baby when wise men brought him royal gifts as they sought out their newborn king. And he had a questionable background, born of a virgin, raised in Nazareth, really? Could anything good come out of Nazareth? And he lived in a land occupied by the Romans in a time when emperor worship was expected. And he had zeal for his father's house, and so he cleansed the temple, purging it of the money changers and thieves. And he renewed the covenant with his disciples at the Last Supper when he raised a cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this happened the very night that Jesus, with his disciples, celebrated the Passover, remembering that God freed them from Egypt and brought them to the promised land where he would be their king. And just like Josiah, Jesus' life was cut short. But unlike Josiah, Jesus' death brought forgiveness and redemption for all who would call him their king. As we close and the bands come back up to lead us in worship, I'm going to ask you this question. Is Jesus your king? That's the message of scripture. Jesus wants to be your king. He wants to guide you. He wants to provide for you. He wants to protect you. But that only happens within the covenant community of faith when we come to recognize Jesus as king. Is he your king? How will you respond to the word of God today? As we join together in worship and we sing, I want you to think about those questions. We're going to join together in offering as well. That's just one more way that we recognize that Jesus is our king and he's worthy of everything that we have. And so as we stand and sing and give, reflect on that question. Is Jesus your king? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we're thankful for the king, Josiah, and the example that he gives, but we're even more grateful for Jesus, our king. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would humble us, that you would teach us to follow you, that you would strengthen us to respond to your word, that you'd make us the kind of people that please you, that you'd make us the kind of heroes that you can use. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our king. Amen.